Today is Sunday, August 21st, 2016, and this is episode 168 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Hey, two weeks in a row. This is kind of crazy. I you, know. It's getting to be a getting to be a thing again. <laughs> At least until we hit October. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> October is going to be a little rough. So, anyhow, uh, how you been? I'm good. I'm good. It's... It's amazing how Sunday keeps keep creeping up on me so quickly, though, and before I know it, i got to go back to work again, but it is what it is. How about you? I'm doing well. Well, you know what they say. Actually, I guess I say it. you got to get through Monday to get back to Friday, so. That's true. Yeah. I cannot deny your, your, your logic, however unuseful it may be at this time. <laughs> Trying to see the, the, the positive, right? So. All right. Anyhow, uh, just a reminder that the thoughts and opinions we express on the show are ours and do not represent those of our employers. Well, maybe they do, but it would be coincidental. <laughs> that's true. So that, That's really our please don't fire us option is, is really what we mean by that. Yes, that's right. So, uh, so getting into our stories, uh, the first one we have tonight is from Naked Security. And the title is NIST's New Password Rules, What You Need to Know. And I'll say it's about damn time. So so NIST, uh, the National Institute of Standards and Technologies here in the U.S., is uh, in the process of publishing updated uh, guidance on authentication. And I, I will first say it's very interesting that NIST has, uh, has taken to... Um, developing new standards using github which i thought was pretty cool um well, makes, you know makes sense i guess but uh, yeah it's it's a useful tool anyway just uh, just like you yeah oh oh snap not as much as your mom is but oh, oh. damn <laughs> so uh so what's changing here um i guess a couple of things first off they and it's this this first thing that this referenced here is a little indeterminate, and the the point is that the as much responsibility for authentication decisions should be put on the the quote verifier. Which, by the way, I always thought that was the case anyway, because it's always seemed <clears throat> like a bad idea to put more responsibility on on the you know, the authenticator, because the more you rely on them, the the, the more you're likely to get into trouble. Um, they have uh, set the, the minimum to eight characters. And uh, actually, if you if you go into the, I actually did read the, the draft standard, and they they actually say, if if you're letting a person pick a new password, it's a minimum of eight characters. But if you're going to auto-generate a password for them, uh, it can be six characters, which I thought was interesting. And they also said <laughs> um, password lengths, maximum password lengths should be at least 64 characters. And they should also support the entire 
printable ASCII set, including things like spaces and Unicode characters and even emojis. So, well, how could a young person possibly make a password without an emoji today? I mean, come on. That's very it's, true. It's important. It's really we are true. actually watching our language devolve back to hieroglyphics. Yes. As we continue on down this path. It's kind of funny. Absolutely. About another, uh, you know, 100 years or so, they'll, they'll, I don't even know how you're going to, I don't know what, what, what uh, verbal language will be like once everything is, has moved over to hieroglyphics or, or I guess emoji, I should say. <laughs> um, let's see. What else? Um, they, they point out that there really needs to be the concept of, uh, I guess I'll, for lack of a better term, bad pa uh, banned passwords, right? So, so there should be baked into your authentication scheme when someone goes to set a password. There should be a, a, a an inventory of passwords that they can't pick. I thought that was interesting. Um, and here's where it gets starts to get pretty controversial a little bit, in my view, is uh, they uh, they call for no more composition rules, <clears throat> so no more. You know, you have to have a special character, uh, one upper, upper, sorry, uppercase, one letter, one, you know, what, whatever. Uh, don't do that anymore. Uh, no password hints. Um, no knowledge base authentication. And here's the kicker. And I guess we probably talked about this um, a little bit last week, right? Uh, no yep. password expiration without a specific reason. Uh, so that was uh, kind of interesting. And by the way, this this new updated guidance is also uh, the source of uh, something that was news a couple of weeks ago, where NIST is also deprecating the use of SMS for two-factor authentication. So this is an interesting one that I have some issues with. Um, but first, one thing to keep in mind that this is actually guidance NIST is developing for use by... <laughs> The U.S. government only, and and that's the basically the non-classified side of the U.S. government. So this is really for their own internal government use, but it's not necessarily meant by default to say this is what everybody should do. So they're building it around their particular risk tolerance and their risk profile and their users. Now it may perfectly address your particular corporation or organization's needs, in which case rock on, take it. But keep in mind, this is not NIST saying, this is what everybody should do. This is what they're saying. This is what everybody in the government should do. So just to get that out there. But yeah, so it's kind of, I, I kind of agree with some of this. Um, you know, put the burden on the verifier. In other words, put the burden on the system to, to ver verify the user. Yeah, you know, you don't want to make it too hard for the user. This is this is something we talk about a lot in security, which is that if you raise the bar too high, people will find a way around your security and do worse things. So I, I get that. Um, here's where I start to to have a challenge with this of, of, of the minimum of eight characters. I, I don't have a problem with that. I think it's probably still a little too short uh, when you look at the capability of GPUs and chain GPUs to to brute force passwords, I think eight characters is probably too short. But especially when you pair that with no more composition rules. In other words, don't force people to have an uppercase, lowercase number of symbols uh, along with eight characters. The whole point of having those uppercase, lowercase, and symbols and numbers is to broaden the, the in essence, table 
of possible answers that somebody has to go through and break. So the more uh, different types of characters, as opposed to all lowercase um, alphas, or you know, is is it makes it that much harder to brute force a password. So if they said no more uh, forcing composition rules of upper lowercase and numbers and symbols, but a minimum of 16 characters, I could get on board. But when you get down to eight characters and you're not forcing somebody to use an upper or lower, a number and a symbol, that seems like a really shallow brute force, relatively speaking. Yeah, I, I, I'll, be, I'll be candid, right? People don't pick random passwords no matter what. No. Eight-character passwords are... I mean, put it this way. Well, a, a, a person generating a password out of their mind that they're intending to remember is not going to generate pa- well, yeah, random I'll, passwords. I'll, I'll jump to the, to the punchline, which is that you really need a password manager to do this right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that's generating random passwords and remember them for you. Now, that doesn't work so well for most circumstances when you're trying to log into your main system login. But for web apps and other sorts of stuff, once you've gotten past your main system login, I, I think a password manager is, is <laughs> you know, minimum minimum technology you need these days to be on the entire webs. But um, the other thing that, that I, I really am struggling with, um, so moving on to, to the rest, I, I have no problem with no password hints. That's probably probably a good idea um the knowledge-based authentication is out i get that though there is a certain type of knowledge-based authentication which i think is fairly useful so the knowledge-based authentication where where the user picks their own questions and answers usually that information is easily derived from public sources and and social media so i get why that's a weakness especially if you know what the question is that that someone's trying to ask you uh to to then follow up with the authentication however there is some stuff that is more interesting where um, usually uh, it's, it's run by like a company like Equifax or whatnot where they're actually looking at really uh, sensitive information that is, again, it's, it's findable but not easily findable. Like what is the, the monthly cost of your mortgage payment and who do you pay it to? Right. That's not when you set. That's when they know from their detailed records of you that they can ask you, you know, what, what street have you lived on? you know, in the past 10 years kind of stuff, which is kind of interesting, right? Where it's a random question. I've seen that on a few, uh, like, mortgage application sites. So, but I get it. Yep. I, I think the, the, the challenge there is we've, we've seen some cases in the past where, um, I don't remember if it was, I guess it was Experian, wasn't it, that, that, had, that got hacked and had some of that data Yep, absolutely. Stolen. So, you know, it's, it, it, it's better than, uh, you know, than what, what high school did you go to? <laughs> no, yeah, no. that's true. Which in your case, it's tough because you were kicked out of what, like six of them? That's true. I don't even know which one I would pick. <laughs> that's true. And Bob never even went to high school. It just, <laughs> he was he was in the special Soviet uh, gulag at the time. Right, right. So, um, so yeah, well, it's, well, it's pretty interesting. I did have a couple of quick comments. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, the no more expiration without reason. Uh basically they talk about the only time a password should be reset is when they're forgotten or they've been fished or you think or know that a password database has been stolen and therefore can be subject to an offline brute force attack. The problem I have with that is the last one. How often do we know that an actual password database has been stolen or that a, that a, a system hasn't somehow been compromised out, out in the world that had that same password? I, I think you have to assume that that's going to happen on a regular basis and you cannot just rely that you're going to know that that's happened. I really disagree with that guidance. Yeah, the, the, 
well, it, there's. I mean, what's the alternative, right? Not, not just leave it moot on that point. Well, I, I mean, the, 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 there's an implicit thing in here, which is don't use the same password on multiple sites. But but there's yes, no way for a verifier to know whether you did or not, right? That's the. I think that's well, the problem. Well, I, I think we're coming down to passwords being fundamentally flawed as well. Um, one last thing, I, this no SMS thing, this has gotten a lot of press. Um, I think it's still a very viable methodology as a second factor. It solves a lot of problems. You don't have to worry about tokens. You don't have to worry about um, you know, managing a piece of hardware. You don't have to, there's a lot of things you don't have to worry about when using SMS. And there are times when... Um, it is the appropriate risk-reward scenario for that particular login. That an SMN makes sense for, you know, we're not talking about government secrets here. We're not talking about, you know, necessarily your bank accounts, but some stuff like, hey, you forgot a password to your, you know, something silly, or your form on, on llamas, right? Maybe SMS is a perfect example of resetting that. But here's my problem with their advice. And this may come from the author on, on Naked Security, or it may be coming from Nest, I'm not sure which, but they're like, they basically lay out all the ways that SMS can be hacked. So therefore, it's not trustable. Okay, I get that. But everything can be hacked. So if I start coming up with these pocket cases of, well, if I use a password manager, then my, my PC can be hacked. Yes, that's true, but the value is still outweighed. And so in general, if I keep in mind that anything can be hacked or intercepted and understand the risk involved in the reward and, and the problem I'm solving, I, I, I just really struggled with, well, you know, you can do these, these sorts of attacks against SMS and you can get this and you can do that and get the text here. I'm like, yeah, but that's a lot of trouble for breaking into my llama, you know, form. <laughs> well, um, I guess a couple of things. One is, I think the reason they're they're down on on SMS in particular is because it's it's almost trivial to uh, to pull off one of these uh, these attacks where you you have somebody else's uh, SMS messages coming to to a phone you control. I mean, it's not. I'll say it's not something that everybody can do, but it's not. It's the, the you know SS seven really wasn't designed to, to prevent that. Now the other point is that th this new guidance doesn't doesn't you know do away with that whole concept. They say that uh, mobile authenticators are fine. Like if you have an app like the Google Google Authenticator app on your phone, you know that's fine. Right, because it's a secure channel. Right, they're just saying that that uh, SMS itself is is just so bad and weak. And again, I think to your point, it, it, you have to kind of weigh it against the thing you're trying to protect. Right. And so if it's a if if it's a weak, you know, if it's a you know casual form, it probably doesn't make sense. But you know, certainly if it's a you know this again, as you pointed out, is intended for government use, it it kind of makes sense. But I, I also think it makes sense in the context of, of things that maybe are a little less sensitive, like your email account. Because your email account is often the gateway to other things, like your bank account. And sure. Your... Yeah, it's usually a first step to all the other password resets. Right. So, so um, you know, I, I see both sides. Um, yeah, whatever. 
Well, we need to go back to our solution, which is the county password inspector, I think is our best option. I completely agree. I mean, what, there's no other there's no other good op- option here. Well, before we get off this topic, because I know I've beat this to death, I think fundamentally we're, we're coming to the conclusion that passwords in general are not sufficient for high security systems. We just we just know that. Yeah. However, the go-to everybody wants typically is biometrics, but I have a serious problem with biometrics. I can never change my fingerprints. And keep in mind that as soon as, as, soon as it becomes digitized and transmitted over, the, over a network, there's always opportunities to capture and replay that. So I don't like biometrics either. I think we need something else. And I don't have an answer yet, but it's not biometrics. Belt sander. Get rid of your mm. fingerprints. Yep. So I, I agree. I actually agree with you on biometrics. I'm I'm not down with it. Although I will tell you, I do really like my uh, Touch ID. And well, here's the thing: it's stored locally, and it's yeah. it's and it's more. Um, it's not transmitted. It's not sent over the wire. It's it's very difficult to capture and replay it. And it's also really just typically access to an app or your local phone. So I think that makes sense. I think that's a, a very viable use of biometrics. I think it's the network-based biometric stuff that we can start getting into a challenge with. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. So moving, moving on to our next story, which I, I guess was really the big thing of the week, right, was uh, Shadow Brokers. So uh, the title... Of- I, I just want to tell you up front, I'm so looking forward to the eight-part miniseries that comes out on this one. <laughs> Yes. Yes. Because there's so much drama and and intrigue surrounding this one that absolutely there. I'm sure a book is currently in in optioning right now. And more to come too. I'm I'm sure. So so this yeah. this story comes from extremetech.com, and the title is Shadow Brokers NSA Theft Puts Snowden Leaks to Shame. Uh, so so what happened here? In case everybody's been living under a rock, uh, that a a mysterious person or group or somebody or a group of somebody's posted a bunch of uh, of data, uh, which was purported to be a a sample of a much larger pot of data, up to pastebin. So three hundred megabytes of code, right? And this code, this source code is is. Uh, uh, you can imagine 300 megabytes of source code is pretty decent amount of source code. So I think people are still trying to figure out what's all in there. But uh, anyway. Especially because that code didn't come with any sort of commentary or notes or instructions or right. comments or anything. It's 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 just code. Right. So, so some things that people have started looking through and found are uh, actual zero days. So there was uh, uh, two zero days against Cisco routers. I, well, actually, I think Cisco picks firewalls. Picks and ASAs. And ASAs, right? Yeah. Uh, with older, well, it's debatable. Some people say older code, but Cisco put out um, their sort of security advisor saying all versions of all code, and they're working on patches. So it's a little wishy-washy in my head. If some are saying it's you know older versions of code, but then some people are <clears throat> were saying, hey, if you're running older code, blah blah. blah. I'm like. You clearly have not worked in either SMB or larger. There's a ton of people running older code on their networking gear, so oh, yeah. don't get cocky. Oh yeah, but but even so, I think it. I read the the Cisco advisory, and it it, it did say that it's um, up through uh, it applies up through the current operating system. Right now, Fortinet was also one of the the um, the 
vulnerabilities in here, but but apparently the Fortinet uh, vulnerability had been patched. I, well, I guess I don't remember if it was patched or or if the software that it was applicable to was end of life a long, long time ago. I'm not that part's not really clear to me. But anyway, it it, it a, a, appears that this pot of vulnerability or pot of exploits is actually several years old, right? So so that's been the scuttle. This is not necessarily at least what's been talked about so far doesn't appear to be uh, really current, although some of it still obviously works. Now, the uh, the allegations, and, and there seems to be a lot of people willing to stand behind this, that this uh, these exploits were actually stolen from the NSA. And there's some, uh, th there's some further speculation. And I think there's actually two, uh, you know, two lines of, of thought here. One is that uh, the NSA had been running an operation uh, from a, a compromised server where they were using that compromised server to then, you know, get into a, um, sorry, my dog is uh, making funny noises. Um, you really should not talk about your wife that way. I keep telling you that. Oh, man. Don't go there. So, uh, anyway, uh, and, and somebody, like maybe the Russians, broke into this, um, uh, you know, command and control server, which had lots of code laying around that, the, that some uh, NSA operator you know, was sloppy about cleaning up. Uh, and then the other, the other uh, allegation is that there was some uh, some subcontractor that I guess it was a yeah it can be a subcontractor right testing uh, doing some testing against some code for the NSA and uh, they disclosed this pot of uh, of vulnerabilities through there. Now interestingly, I mentioned that you know this 300 megabytes of uh, of code was purported to be a a, a subset of a much larger uh, set. And that much larger set is being auctioned for the low, low price of 1 million Bitcoins. Not, not 1 million dollars, mind you. 1 million Bitcoins was actually about a half a billion dollars or a little more. So that's fairly impressive. That, that'd buy a nice car. So there's a, there's a lot of discussion that basically says, you know, that, that probably tells us that, you know, either A, they're not actually serious about selling it or b it doesn't really exist you know more more than what we already have if it doesn't actually exist or you know there's there's maybe some other uh you know, some other uh explanation here but um there, there does seem to also be consensus that it's uh it's the russians right every article i read says it's russians but uh certainly we we actually don't know who did it I'm going to put forth a theory heard first exclusively here. Luxembourg? No. I believe this is the opening shot in the AI tech wars. I think this is Siri, who's had enough of Cortana. Ooh. And she's not putting up with that shit anymore. And this is the first opening salvo of Siri becoming self-aware. Taking out Alexa, Cortana, wow. hey Google, whoever else wants to go. Huh. That's what I think. Impressive. So, you know, a couple couple serious thoughts though. This this actually reminds me a little bit of the remember the hacking team breach and all their O days that got dropped? Yep. 
reminds me a bit of that. Um, you know, this is older stuff, but it's still probably fairly effective. I also wonder, have you know? Okay, let's let's assume for a moment this is the NSA and, and the TAO group. If they're actually out there actively using this, they've got to be somewhat careful about how and when they use it because they don't want to burn it. But assuming they're using it, they're using it successfully. Like one of the exploits apparently was a way to um, monitor VPN communication between Cisco VPN concentrators by basically being able to do remote extraction of the key, which is pretty damn impressive. But if if they're actually out there using it, assuming that well, I'll put it this way. We suck at catching zero days. We suck at finding post-exploit activity in our networks. Because I certainly haven't heard anybody say, hey, we found this malware, and wow, we really, it's weird, it's a no-day, and we think it might be the U.S. government, or, you know, maybe, maybe they're just that good at covering the tracks, but I think we actually just are very bad at spotting anomalous behavior in our environments. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, and the, the, other, the other thing is, one of the one of the uh, Cisco zero days was actually against SNMP. And yeah, you, you you had to know you had to be able to hit it with SNMP. So get around an, an ACL, which they recommend you you run against SNMP, and you had to know the SNMP key for it to work. Right. But if you knew both of those, you could do a um, remote code exploit knowing the box. Yeah, but I, you know, this kind of goes back to the whole least privilege thing. I mean, if you if you're exposing SNMP to the world. You're playing with fire already. Well, true, but people do it. <laughs> well, I know, but again, I, I, you know, I used to come back to. There's a lot of, no, the VPN thing. Granted, like that's, you know, I, I think that was leveraging a similar Ike problem, right? That that we had a had a while ago. Um, but you know, we just we're not really good. There's a lot of basic things that we could be doing that well, we don't. <laughs> The other thing I was thinking about with this SNMP thing is this also could have been a post-breach escalation technique. I'm I'm already in your environment. I've determined that you've got ASAs on the edge. I determined that, wow, you've got SNMP open internally to these guys. Now I can take control of the firewall and start modifying it for exfiltration or whatever it is I want to do. Yeah, Rob, Rob Graham, I don't know if you read his uh, post. He, he wrote a blog post that entire blog post which basically said that exactly that oh he, he said that no. um based on his assessment of the tools they all they were all uh well I, i'm assuming he hasn't looked at every one of them but uh, <laughs> all of the ones that he's seen are post-exploitation tools so they're they're well, to help you move around rob is brilliant so if he agrees with me then then I'll, I'll point to his blog because he probably has done a far more in-depth analysis than i ever could <laughs> So. Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, we're so early in this, it's really tough to know definitive things. But here's the last thing I, I do want to say on this is that this is probably nation state level stuff. Probably is the key word there. And I got to tell you, I don't lose a lot of sleep at night trying to defend my enterprise against nation state level stuff. There's a thousand different ways they're going to get into my organization if they really want to. Yeah. I, well, I have a couple of, I have a couple of, of additional thoughts. No, just in response to that, and similar to the hacking team thing, and into what we saw after Stuxnet and Flame and Gauss, and it, it's um, you know, th there's the kind of the acute 
problem. Like with with in this particular case, you know, the actual code was disclosed, and I suspect for the, probably the next several months, there's going to be a nonstop stream of like super high priority vulnerabilities being released or, or patches, I guess the vulnerabilities are out there, um, you know, based on what's in this, in this pile of, of, uh, source code. My, my concern is the more chronic problem because in, in, in almost in very few cases with Heartbleed and, and others, we don't, we really don't see much activity, or at least we, we don't find out that there's been much activity that actually uh, exploited that. What what we tend to, at least in my view, see is the more chronic problem, where the the techniques developed, in, not the specific code, right, but the techniques developed are adopted by people that never would have thought of of approaching things in this way. Sure. And and so that's, you know, to your point, I don't worry too much about the NSA, right? Because, you know, or or the or the Russian government or the Chinese government because you know what? They have a ton of different ways to get in. I mean, we we should try definitely try to, you know, keep the bar high, right? But if they want to, you know, if they want to uh, you know, turn somebody or I mean, like there's there's only so much you can do. My concern is is the adoption of those techniques by lower level criminals. Yeah, it, you're absolutely correct. You actually hit on a really good point, which is also why when somebody says it must be nation state, I chuckle because of exactly that point. Once a technique is out there, that's the hard part. Right. Another another group could easily co-opt that technique. I guess I'll add, add I, I guess I have more comments to make here. You know, this also pointed out why <clears throat> we recently had a big debate over whether or not law enforcement should have backdoors into crypto, especially like phones and such, and that they would have a magic special key that they would keep really secure. Well, this kind of shows that that's not always guaranteed. Right. And, exactly. you know, uh, it's really tough to, even with the best of intentions by law enforcement, to guarantee that they can protect that super secret backdoor that they would want built into things. So, um, you know, I, I I get where they're coming from. I get that they need to do their job, but I think that what they're asking for is just too dangerous. And this, and this demonstrates that. You know, the other thing that, I don't want to get off on a long rant on this, though I could, is I see a lot of big enterprises having a lot of policy and process and, and guidelines built around how they do InfoSec. And, you know, it's interesting is we're, in my mind, we're accelerating faster and faster in this uh, arms race of you know, breach type and threat and detection and response. And what I fear is that a lot of organizations with really, quote unquote, mature developed operations and security plans aren't giving themselves enough flexibility to adapt to new and novel attacks. Because they have staff to run the way that their operations are built and the way that their expectations are built. And what I see is that the bad guys are going to continue to innovate. And if we don't have enough slack in our security staff and slack in our process and policy to be able to adapt to a new and novel way of doing something, we're going to be caught flat-footed. When the bad guys pivot, we can't. Which is That, that topic deserves a lot more unpacking. Um, 
but it's something that's been kicking around in my head lately that that I at least wanted to get out there. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think a lot of larger organizations really struggle with things like ransomware, you know, because it's just not it, it's just not in the in in the the policy tool set. Yeah, ransomware is a great example of that. Good good idea. Yeah. So um, there was one other one other point I wanted to make, and and it's a rhetorical point because I don't know that we'll ever know the truth here, but I find it very interesting. Uh, I guess it was about a week and a half, maybe two weeks ago, there was the big kerfuffle about uh, Edward Snowden. You know, he was he alive or was he dead? You know, he made some ominous comment, and uh, you know he he posted a, a long. Uh, what appeared to be decryption key or in- encryption key, and then w- which was later deleted, and he made a comment that I don't remember the exact comment, but effectively said, you know, it, now is the time to act. Um, it, kind of a call to arms of uh, of his former coworkers, and I I got to wondering, you know, is there any is what's the what's the likelihood? And I haven't seen anybody talking about this. What's the likelihood that you know that that uh, either a all of the data that is being disclosed here was in the data that he walked out the door with, uh, and and so that key that he disclosed gave someone who didn't have access to it before uh, access to it, or b uh, you know he there is somebody else on the inside and his called a action um, you know yielded some fruit. I I don't know. Yeah, I, like you said, it's rhetorical. It's really tough to know. It's just, <clears throat> I think there's a lot of folks with a lot of agendas out there. So it's it's certainly possible that it's Snowden-inspired or Snowden-related, but I also think it's highly possible it's it's other unrelated activities. Yeah, indeed. Um, so, uh, but it, you know, it is it is driving. I'll tell you, it is driving in the in the community a ton of debate and discussion. Re, I guess renewed debate and discussion about. Governments sitting on O days and um, you know those, yes those agreed. Uh, is that ethical? Is that wise? I think it's inevitable. I think if they find an O day, they're absolutely going to hold on to it until they know somebody else has found it too. Here, here's one other thing that I'll say <clears throat> that that came under mind. These things pop up and and it gets a lot of press and it gets a lot of interest and people are like, oh, what should we do? And I I had. I had my CISO asking me that, and you know, and oh, what are we, what are we doing to defend our ASA, ASAs against this? And do we have ASAs? I'm like, I get it, guys, but let's not lose sight of the forest for the trees. If if you if you're responding to this brand new attack, but you know you've got other critical vulnerabilities you haven't patched on your gear that's been out there for years, maybe let's before you start responding to really kind of exotic esoteric attacks, let's get the basics down. Yeah. First. Yep. Now and again, not saying we shouldn't pivot and shouldn't keep be flexible, but it's it's funny how executives want to chase what's in the news without necessarily realizing that there's a lot more risk out there by stuff that isn't in the news. Well, I I see that a lot in spades with um you know with a lot of the previous things like Harpleet and Shellshock, which you know it in, in in certain no uncertain terms were were very serious, right? But in in many respects, a lot of them are no more serious than the content that's put out in Microsoft's monthly Patch Tuesday updates. And but those never get the the, the press. You know, you never. Well, you know, they're normalized, right? They're, right. Yeah. 
Right, but the I guess the point is, um, we we don't have the we don't have the the, the pressure behind patching um, Microsoft vulnerabilities because it was super you know super serious and they have they happen all the time and yeah so so it is a it is an interesting thing and I just don't think as an industry we have a really great way to think about things and that's why there's so much by the way there's so much debate about uh, naming vulnerabilities. Right, because it's it really artificially. Um, well, who was it a couple of months back that had that big backlash? Because they announced that they were going to announce this big one, and they had a logo, and a and a name, and a theme song, and a you know. <laughs> and actor, <clears throat> yeah, actors, and right, right, they had its own mascots, right. and then it turned out to be no big deal. Oh, who was it? Was um, was, well, I know CrowdStrike had one. Yeah, I but think it was... Um, was that Venom, right? Yes, Venom. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. And, uh, yeah, you got to be careful with that. I think, I think, I think we've, we're getting to starting to see some backlash in that, that philosophy. Indeed. So, um, so we beat that one into the ground. And on to happier news, uh, the next story we have comes from fizz.org, and the title is, People Ignore Software Security Warnings Up to 90% of the Time. And in this... Uh, this article is about a study that some university uh, researchers in Google uh, did on uh, how people pay attention to security pop-ups. And they point out that um, basically people in, when a, when a security dialogue pops up, it's almost always while they're doing something else. And so I'm going to oversimplify here, right? But people just want to get through the warning and get back to what they were doing. And so they don't often pay attention to it. And part of that's because we're just not great at multitasking. And I, you know, I, in, in the, in the story here, they, they point out that the real solution is that software designers need to think about the right time to present those security dialogues at a, at a better point, you know, so rather than when they first start to watch a video, for example, you know, pop it up at the end. My problem with that is, you know, the, the security dialogue usually pops up in the context of something bad, you know, and, and so I, 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 I keep, I've been really trying to think about the, a use case that would make sense to be able to delay, and I really can't come up, come up with one. Um, I think this comes back to the same problem that we have with phishing and we have with everything else that is reliant upon a user to think like we think. And I think this just reinforces the concept that users have got stuff to do and that they just, they're going to click past things to get their stuff done. And, and this is why... No matter what level of training we give, no matter what user awareness training and simulations, there's always going to be this psychological challenge of the user wants to get their work done or whatever it is they're trying to achieve. They're judged on getting that work done. Absolutely. They're held accountable to getting that work done. Right. Not reacting to security, which is somebody else's problem. Uh, and by the way, I, I I don't think security people are are all that immune to it either. I mean, we, no, we, we no, have our just, own deadlines and timeframes. Absolutely. And, 
No, you're right, uh, and I shouldn't. I shouldn't have implied that. I, I think that we're we're more aware of the consequences at times because we think about it. Yeah. But we are certainly not immune, and we certainly um, fall for it as well. And, and where I'm going with this ultimately is that I don't think that relying on users to always do the right thing, quote unquote, in the context of security, is a viable long-term strategy. There's too many competing. Psycholo psychological reasons why they think the right thing is something else. Yeah, you know. By the way, I, th this this I should have rearranged things and put this one up by the password one because I, I have a say anything, but <laughs> I have a I have a really big problem with the way password changes work. Everywhere I've ever worked, you know, when when your password expires, and I know what they talk about. You know, we shouldn't expire passwords anymore. Uh, but, you know, they do, right? It's a, it's a reality, you know. And, and by the way, I, I imagine it's going to take a long time for standards and, you know, uh, PCI and, you know, other other security standards to, you know, to, to normalize to the, new, to the new world. So I think we're going to be living with password expirations for a long time. But anyway, they always pop up at the, mo at the worst time. Right, and you have like usually right. not given the opportunity to come back to it. It's like okay, you know, it's uh, you're doing stop, do this right now. Yeah, it's like you know, you do anything else. I've got, I've got to get this report to my, you know, to my executive team in, you know, in 20 minutes, and now I got to pick a damn password. Well, and we saw we've seen research that shows like phishing success is is variable based on time of day day of week, all sorts of stuff like that, based on people's workload, what they're doing. So this reinforces that, in general, people who are just, they're just trying to get their work done. Right, right. And, and so I, I just think that, that we have a, we have a bad system of incentives um, around security dialogues, around, um, you know, assessing whether something that you've gotten in an email is, is, is legitimate or not, um, picking a decent password. It just seems like the incentives are completely in the, in the wrong direction and operating away from um, a direction that would let lead people to, to, to do better. And I right. think until we solve, solve that, we're going to, we're just fighting. A, or or we need to make our systems highly resilient to users doing dangerous things. Well, I, I'm, honestly, I think that's the that's the end game, right? But but we just we're not there yet. I mean, in, I, I know that there there are some listeners of our show who have uh, innovative technologies on how to you know how to increase the trusting and computing, which I think is ultimately where the industry is going to go. <clears throat> However, you know we have a lot of capability in the stuff we're using today, and we can't stop shooting ourselves in the foot as it is. Right. And and. You know, that's my, like, we, I, I, I'm, I'm growing more and more convinced that the problem is not in the, you know, in the quote user space. It's in the, you know, in the IT and the security space. We just, we're just bad at designing things and, and, and laying things out. And, and if you, you know, if we get new tools, new capabilities, we're just going to find new ways to, to shoot ourselves in the foot until we fix this problem. Right. So anyway. Um, moving on to the last story, uh, which is from 
CSO Online, and the title is Cerber Ransomware Earns $2.3 Million with a 0.3% response rate. And um, so Cerber is, is a uh, one of the many flavors of ransomware that's out there. But what's innovative or, or unique, I suppose, about this one is it's it's really a, a, an affiliate style uh, operation, right? So whereas things like Wacky and others are, um, you know, are kind of run by one monolithic group, this, this uh, server, basically you know, the, the, the makers of it uh, offer, uh, you know, basically offer it as a service. So you can come and run your own, you can subscribe, run your own campaign. You get 60% of the profits, the, um, the, 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 like the server group for lack of a better name, um, keeps 40% of the profits. And the kind of the, the cut to the chase, their, their point was that, um, interestingly, they, they apparently Checkpoint, who wrote this report, uh, had some access into their into the server backend, and uh, they claimed to have a, a 3% click-through rate. So 3%, uh, you know, if, if you sent it to 1,000 people, you would imagine that 30 people would would open it. And, and get infected and, and then pay. But um, when Checkpoint looked under the covers, they found that actually it was a, it was a tenth, you know, one-tenth of that. So 0.3% of people uh, infected actually paid, which was, uh, I, yeah. So anyway, uh, not, not very, not a very high, uh, you know, effect, not very effective, right? But um, point is, even even with that really paltry number, they were still making two hundred thousand dollars in July, the month of July. And so they they annualized that and said that's like two point three million dollars over the course of the year, which is a pretty good uh, deal. And their their point was that you know th- this um, this is probably a model that we're going to see more and more um, criminal enterprises move towards, where you know. Th- uh, you have to. You can imagine that the server group here is, you know, that they're kind of one step removed. So they're not on the front line anymore. Somebody else is, and so I would imagine from their perspective, they probably feel a little more uh, insulated, and uh, and and then it's also easy for the people who want to do the get rich quick thing uh, and subscribe as an affiliate, and then they even have a, uh, which I thought was pretty clever they have a uh, 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 a referral program so you get you get money for if, if you're for the affiliates referring other people to become affiliates you know they, they get some multi-level some marketing ransomware it's uh anyway point is uh the adversaries our adversaries are becoming very well organized and and from a from kind of a capitalist marketing you know organizational perspective and uh, and and they're they're kind of driving, you know, the the whole franchise uh, marketing uh, model into into this. And and I, I just it's yet another example of you know, we've got to we've got to get on top of this stuff. Uh, the good news is, by the way, apparently it's it's pretty low, right? So 0.3 percent, lot less than has been reported in other areas. Well, for this one particular campaign. Yes, that was observable by checkpoint. That's yes, that's right. And uh, but still, that's a hell of a lot of money. Yeah, this, it certainly is. 
It could be how Bob is funding his llama farm. We've never quite been able to figure out the source of his funding. <laughs> yeah. Well, if he ends up with a million Bitcoin soon, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll, know, uh, we'll know something's up. So uh, anyhow, anything else you wanted to, uh, to mention about this one? Uh, no, I, I, you know, I think it, it, it will just continue to be a, an ongoing battle. And it's so, you know, we've said it before, it's, it's instant monetization for the bad guys. So it's, it makes a lot of sense for them to stay on it. And um, it's yeah. a tough problem to solve. Yeah. And I, I, I think from the, it, it allowed, by the way, I, I think that it should be obvious, right? But this kind of model allows a lot of specialization, and and so so the the you know the, the tool writers uh, can become really special high, highly specialized on developing their tools, and you know the the front end affiliates become very adept at leveraging um, you know botnets and and uh, uh, exploit kits and things like that on on at their at their layer, and so. Uh, I just think that as time marches on, the, uh, the 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 respective attackers' roles are becoming much more mature, and so we're seeing, for instance, emails. And this this just kind of just plays into it, right? The mm-hmm. the emails we see that deliver this stuff, you know, they're not they're good now, you know, they're 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 approaching what we would have you know five years ago called spear phishing level quality. Right. And but it's a mass, you know, it's a mass, uh, uh, it's a mass distributed attack, and um, and somebody somebody's going to write back to me and say it's not an attack, whatever. <laughs> well, you know, we did have a listener too who was kind of talking to us a little bit on Twitter about okay, if phishing and whatnot is such an avenue for attack, because I think we saw another stat that ninety three percent of ransom of phishing right now is ransomware. Like, how do you defend against it? That's probably an entire show because it's such a complex topic but maybe next show we'll we'll get into that and spend a half hour on it start talking through that yeah it's it's a difficult it's a difficult topic that's very broad because you know what fishing is um yeah you're fighting every possible vector right basically right. that could come in over over email exactly so yeah um i think that would be a good idea to, to cover next week so Anyway, thank you everyone for listening, and uh, again, thanks to, to in particular to our Patreon sponsors. We had a, a couple of new generous people over the past week, so thank you very much. Seriously, thank you. That is awesome of you guys. Yeah, it's uh, definitely helpful. And um, if you do like the show, give us a rating on iTunes. That that helps us. We've you know, I, it, it it makes me it warms the cockles of my heart wherever that is when I log into iTunes and I see us, you know pretty high up in the ratings so thank you very much for for those of you who have uh, given us a rating and uh, if you want to find links to the stories we've talked about today go to our website at www.defensivesecurity.org and you can follow the show on twitter at defensive sec you can follow mr Callett on twitter at lurg and me on twitter at malicious link and uh, with that we will talk again next week have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening as always. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.